right up in the morning to you. <laughs> Great to be back. Missed you guys a ton. Thank you for praying. We had such a blast um, and just it's so encouraging to, as Benji was talking about Slovenia and Scotland and uh, to see God shining light in the darkness um, and using uh, very broken people like us. It's pretty cool. So encouraging. So uh, thank you for making a difference, uh, those of you who are praying and giving, sending us uh, to go. Well, I want to start. Uh, we're, we're wrapping up Hebrews 13 today and the book as a whole. And I just wanted to mention before uh, I got into the message today, and I, I so appreciated Kevin just directing us to a place of thanksgiving. And what better place for us to start? We need to be reminded of who God is and what he's like and what he is doing and what he's able to do. Um, but then I also recognize that all of us came in here with who knows what kind of stuff going on. Maybe some really hard things. Um, so at the end of this morning, our worship gathering, we're going to give you an opportunity, uh, if you haven't been here before, to text in prayer. And our elder team is going to be up here and a couple of other folks uh, just to pray right here in person uh, for whatever those needs might be. So if you have something that kind of comes to mind, I want you to feel the freedom to text us uh, at the end. I'll give you instructions on how to do that. But we would love to pray for you this morning. Uh, how many of you have played Follow the Leader? A few folks in here? Yeah, we sort of all grow up doing that. It's an ancient game, if, uh, if you're wondering. I found this painting. Uh, it's a 16th century painting, and you can see a little Follow the Leader going on in there. So it's been around a while. The rules, not difficult. One leader... A line of followers, right? And they're trying to do everything that the leader does. And the leader is trying to trip everybody up, right? Do something that the followers can't do. And if you're a follower and you're unable to mimic the leader, you're out. So the line grows steadily shorter. And then whatever follower is last, the remaining follower becomes the leader. Right? We've all played it. It's a ton of fun for kids. But have you ever found yourself playing a world's version of follow the leader in the places that you do life as an adult? I have found that that version of follow the leader isn't so fun. In fact, it can be greatly discouraging. The game from a world's perspective, runs on things like self-interest, rivalry, mistrust, power plays, disloyalty. And we sort of scratch our heads and wonder why our, why our world is so hostile and divided. But we're playing the game. Now, here's the saddest part. Church history is littered with leaders and followers who have been playing the world's version of follow the leader as long as the church has been a thing. And it's been devastating. 
Probably the most visible recent reminder of this um, is captured in a podcast. It's actually the most listened to podcast, Christian podcast in history. Uh, Christianity Today put it out. Some of you have probably heard it. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I want to read you the description from Christianity Today. Founded in 1996, Seattle's Mars Hill Church was poised to be an influential, undeniable force in evangelicalism. That is until its spiraling collapse in 2014, just 18 years later. The church and its charismatic founder, Mark Driscoll, had a promising start, and he did. But the perils of power, conflict, and Christian celebrity eroded and eventually shipwrecked both the preacher and his multi-million dollar platform. That church no longer exists, and it was one of the largest ones in America. Now, there are a lot of individual autonomous churches now that kind of spun out of that. But it was devastating. I urge you to listen to that podcast. It's very sobering. And here's what you're going to find. It's not just about Mark Driscoll. It's about us. It's about how we do church. It's about our understanding of the form and function of the body of Christ. And as much issue as Mark had... In leading that church, there were plenty of people that were glad to let him do it because it had grown so popular, so powerful, so influential in the world that they just turned a blind eye to things that they should have addressed. So it's a great lesson for all of us. This morning, we are going to look at the form and function of the body of Christ as it relates to God's version of follow the leader. Now, there is such a thing. We don't want to just throw everything out and say, well, there, there must not be anything like followers and leaders because that's not a biblical understanding of things. But we want to understand it rightly. So um, it's interesting, our passage, the end of Hebrews, is probably one of the classic texts helping us understand how this whole relationship is to be uh, addressed. Uh, so we're going to talk about church life, and I want to give you a foundational context before we look at our passage today, three key passages that help inform our understanding and interpretation of Hebrews 13. So the first is Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So if, the, if there is this organization, this organism called the church, who's leading it? Who's the leader? Is there one? Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, that is God, put all things under his feet, that is Jesus' feet, and gave him as head, there's the key word, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church does have a leader, and it's not me, it's not our elder team, it's not a bunch of bishops off somewhere, it's not the pope, 
It is Jesus Christ. And I'm speaking at this point about the big C church, the universal church, the whole community of Christ followers that inhabit this earth. Their head is one, Jesus Christ. And he was put in that place by God the Father. Now, here's what the head did with his church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he, that is Jesus Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all, leaders and followers alike, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. And what does that look like? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what the head did when he was given his church. He set up leaders and followers all of whom were to relate to one another in a particular way so that maturity and unity and influence could be had. Jesus assigns gifted leaders to local churches for the purpose of preparing every Christ follower for personal, skilled servant work. And that cultivates Christ-like maturity. So here's the principle from these first two passages, and then I've got one more. All, please hear me, all are called to maturity and influence. If you know Christ, if you have entrusted your life to him, you are not an exception. You were made and remade by Christ for maturity and influence. Some among us are called to leadership, and I mean that just in a more formal sense. That's why I distinguish between influence and leadership. We all have influence. But in terms of the organization of the church, some are called to leadership. You might just jot down Romans 12, 3 through 8. There is a great description there of how the members of the body work in their giftedness. So this is not about superiority. In fact, leaders ought to be great servants. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Jesus called them, his disciples, to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He could have said, the world plays follow the leader their way. And you know it, you see it, you experience it. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you will be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to... Say that louder. Yes. Yes. Amen. To serve. The position of leadership is not for the privilege of the leader. 
Position of leadership is for the good of the body and the advancement of the mission and nothing more. The head came not to be served, but to serve. And here's how he served. He gave his life as a ransom for you. He calls you to do the same. Lay down your life for the people that you serve. Is that a good backdrop? Let's get into the passage. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That just doesn't sound right, does it? That doesn't feel good, does it? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I summarized it this way. Cooperative followers and vigilant leaders make for joyful progress. Cooperative followers and vigilant leaders make for joyful progress. So I want to describe here from this passage ideal followers and ideal leaders. And this passage does speak to both, although the writer, he was directing his comments very particularly at followers. That's not a condescending thing. It's not a demeaning thing. It's just saying, and I'm assuming the, the writer knew the church he was, he was writing. So there's something going on. I don't know what it is. He doesn't spell it out, but he's saying, hey, followers, here's what I need you to do as it relates to your leaders. Obey and submit. Now, again, in, in the good old U.S. of A., where we are as independent as the day is long, like, don't tread on me, right? Nobody tells me what to do. Well, that's the world's version of follow the leader. Because according to the writer of Hebrews, we are to obey and submit. So that means that somebody else has some kind of say in my life. Here's what obedience means. The, the original has the idea of being open to persuasion. So specifically, there is a trust associated with obedience. There is a responsiveness. And I use this word, there is a, a cooperative spirit that if I, if I have, if there's an initiative made toward me, some direction given, I cooperate with that. And then submissive is actually a stronger word, but it's the ideal of uh, yielding, deferring, but it's supportive. In a marriage, I'm, I'm stepping on all kinds of toes this morning. So the husband is called the head of the wife. And the comparison that Paul gives is just as Christ is the head of the church. So when you say to a wife, you should submit to your husband, does that mean that she's a doormat? No, not at all. 
It means that she is essential to the design that God gave a husband and a wife in the context of a family. So she is to be an engaged, responsive, supportive helper. And together they do what neither of them could do all by themselves. It's a beautiful picture. Same thing for the church. You're not a doormat if you're obeying and submitting. It means you're fully engaged. As Jeff likes to say a hundred times a day, I'm all in. I love that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Like we all have a part to play and neither part is more or less important than any other. They're just parts. And so just like I think, I, I feel this very confidently, you would want me to value and respect and esteem the part that you play in this church, right? And I would want you to do the same for me. And every leader would say the same if they were honest. So, and I've actually thought about this. I wish I were a visiting pastor. I wish I could come in here and talk to you and just tell you, hey, obey and submit to your leaders, whoever those guys are in this church. But I happen to be one of them. So I just need you to hear it as if I'm a visiting pastor, just teaching Hebrews 13, 17 through 25. All right, so along with ideal followers, we do get some insight into ideal leaders. And the two words that I would use here are watchful and accountable. An ideal leader is watchful and accountable. Watchful is attentive, thoughtful, conscientious, vigilant. The picture is a shepherd watching over sheep. And there are dangers, there are threats, and that, the job of that shepherd is to protect the sheep. Sometimes that involves some direction, right? Got to get the sheep over here or over there, get them in the pen, go find a, a wayward sheep, right? That's, that's just part of the job doesn't mean the shepherd thinks he's better than the sheep. He's just going to answer for how well he cares for them. Here's what Paul instructed the elders in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus to do. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So an ideal leader must be watchful, and they are also accountable. Um, overseers are stewards, not owners. So this is not my church. This is not the elder's church. This is not a staff person's church. Whose church is this? It's Jesus' church. So we are stewards of this church. That means that there will be a day when the owner comes back. And then he says, what did you do with my church? Now, he's going to say that to all of us. But again, we all have different parts to play. I'm going to answer for my part. 
and you're going to answer for yours. So we are accountable. What are we accountable for? 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Here's what he said to a group of elders. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So let's go back to that version of follow the leader. Remember the leader's trying to do things that cause the followers to misstep. And the world does that. Leaders literally will set things up for others to fail so that they can hold on to power and control. And it cannot be that way in the church. Leaders are supposed to make following as easy as it can possibly be. And it's still hard. As I thought about followers and leaders, I thought they can make each other miserable. I think that's part of what the writer is addressing. Oppressive authoritarian leaders make following a drudgery, don't they? That's in any context, but certainly in the church. Obstinate, contemptuous followers make leading regrettable. And I've experienced that. Because there are some times when I have to sit down with a fellow brother or sister in Christ and I have to speak the truth in love. I have to say hard things. And I will promise you there is nothing, nothing more heartbreaking than to sit eye to eye with a hard-hearted believer who just won't have it. And I'm not saying, that's not a power play because I'm subject to the same thing. Anyone literally can come to me and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And I'm not exempt because I'm an elder. I have to sit and give genuine, serious, spirit-led consideration to what's being shared with me. And when you come across a hard-hearted believer, it's heartbreaking. And honestly, I, one of the things I really had to grow in was saying it's not about me. It's not personal. Their issue is with the Lord. And that's what's so heartbreaking. Because none of us find life with a calloused heart. Leaders and followers should seriously consider what it's like to walk in the other's shoes. So as we sit down together in various contexts, it's just, it's just helpful to remember. Like I need to remember what it's like for you to, to ever have to follow. And I, I hope that you would remember, again, for all of our leaders, what it's like to lead. And it's challenging. I'm not asking for a pity party. I love my job. I really do. It is, it is the greatest privilege of my life. But it's challenging. Here's some things to keep in mind that will help 
with following, I think. Leaders are simply lead followers. So whether a leader recognizes it or not, they ought to be modeling following. I I would say, and I learned this a long, long, long time ago, one of the greatest qualifications for a leader is that they have first proven that they can follow well, even when it's hard. If they can't do that, they have no business leading. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. There's the picture. Secondly, a leader's authority is derived from Christ and grounded in Scripture. So this is a safeguard for the church. What that means is, certainly, followers are called to follow as long as they're being led in a Christ-centered, gospel-centered word-based direction. And I'm not talking about preferences. Like we all have preferences. I'm talking about when you see a violation of God's word, that's when you have an opportunity to say, hold on a second, I can't follow there. But otherwise, here we go. Lastly, the assignments given to leaders and followers are commands, not suggestions. And that applies to all of us. So when we come to this passage, we're not called to deliberate. I wonder if I should do this or not. What we're called to do is figure out how to do it in a God-honoring way. And again, it applies to leaders and followers alike. A quick word about um, our elder structure here. Two words, you can write them down, uh, plurality and unanimity. Here's what that means. We lead with a plurality of elders. That means there's no one elder that's in charge. Okay, I founded this church and I have no more power than any of our other elders. I don't ever get to say, hey, guys, I'm going to play the card. This is what I want. No, we deliberate. Sometimes we disagree, but we stay at it and we move toward unanimity, which that also means that unless we can all around the table say, I will represent this decision as if I had made it all by myself. Until we can get to that place, we don't make a decision. And here's what we assume. The Holy Spirit is all about the unity of the church, right? So as leaders of his church, don't you think that he would bring us to a place of unity if that's where we're supposed to go? So if we don't have unity, then we just assume we ain't there yet. And we got to keep working on this and talking about it and praying about it, figuring it out so that we can get to a place where we're all on the same page. That's how we have always functioned as an elder team. I want you to know that. All right, point two, verse 18. Leaders need prayer just like followers. And I'll just confess to you guys, uh, this is a weak point for me. I am very slow to ask for prayer. I wish I was quicker. I hope I'm getting better. 
But my, my understanding of leadership from a world's perspective was I'm supposed to be the guy who is always steady, never affected. I don't need anybody praying for me. I need to pray for you. I need to take care of you. And that's hogwash. But that's just what was drilled into my head as a child. And so I want to get better at this. But the writer of Hebrews models it perfectly. He says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. The writer is asking for those people that he's leading to pray for him. It's beautiful. His knowledge, experience, and maturity don't exempt him from the need for prayer. So regardless of how together any leader might be, let me assure you, they need you. I need you to pray for us. The writer here, it's interesting, um, is hoping to be restored so the idea is that he's probably in prison. That's most commentators believe he, he's hoping to be released and restored from prison. And he's talking about having a clear conscience and acting honorably, which would also suggest that he's probably suffering from injustice and persecution. And isn't it interesting, as we've been going through this entire book, what is the writer calling his leaders to endure? Things like injustice and persecution. This guy's writing from a prison cell. And he's saying, pray for me. Because I want to endure just like I'm urging you to endure. And that's pretty powerful coming from a prison cell. Apparently, he believes that the prayers of his readers can affect the timing of his release. I do wonder, you guys, if we have far too little expectation around the effect of prayer. I, I think if we understood just how significant and powerful it is, we would probably do a lot more of it. But I can tell you, even from our recent trip, you know, there were so many occasions where. I just, I was sustained knowing that there were people that were praying and saw God work in some amazing ways. Let's jump down to verse 22. We'll come back to 20. The writer says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It hasn't seemed brief since we've been in this book for several months now. <laughs> you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. That phrase, word of exhortation, it literally means a sermon. That's where we get the idea that this was a sermon. It was to be read to the church, and it was to represent exposition and application 
of the scriptures. Now, all that he had to work with was the Old Testament. We've had a whole lot of it, haven't we? So a beautiful model of how to use God's word effectively in the context of the community of faith. And he is pleading with them to take his words to heart, to bear with it, to let that word shape and reshape what they think about life. And I thought it's tempting for all of us to respond either casually or even with some neglect when we hear the word. And knowing that, it's true of me too, that's why we ask the question, so what? At the end of every message, we're just asking you to not just be informed by the word, to nod in agreement, but to be transformed by the word so that you and I are different having heard God's word. So we will continue to do that. Um, the personal comments regarding Timothy's release and his greeting to uh, their leaders and then the folks from Italy, all that. For me, I just thought, what a great picture of community. That we're a part of a community that is way bigger. There was this one sweet gal in Scotland, and we had a long conversation. She's just been just faithful in ministry for so, so long. And in the course of our conversation, she said, you know, it's just funny to me how we can meet and be complete strangers, but because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we're family instantly. And we don't know each other, but we know our, our father. We share that in common. And she was right. It's just astounding how we can go anywhere in the world and you meet a believer and, and there's just something in you, the Holy Spirit, says, this is family. You're connected. It's always been that way. Well, the benediction. This is a prayer, a prayer wish of the writer for that church, but because it's inspired scripture, this was his prayer wish for us. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Very quickly, the essence of his prayer is, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's what he's praying for this church and for us. The basis of his request is the power of the resurrection of Jesus, the superiority of our great shepherd Jesus, right? We hit all that way back at the beginning of Hebrews. And then the sufficiency of Christ's perfect sacrifice to establish an eternal covenant with God so that you and I would have eternal assurance. The outcome of God's intervention is two things, that we would be made pleasing to God, and that ought to knock us over. You know you, and I know me. And the idea that I could be pleasing to God is pretty astounding. 
because I can think of all the reasons why I'm not pleasing to God. But he makes me pleasing to him because of the good work that he has done in my heart and is doing in my life each and every day. Secondly, Jesus will receive the glory he so rightfully deserves. Your life and mine, our community of faith, can glorify the head of the church, our chief shepherd. That's something to give thanks for. I want to give you an opportunity to uh, answer that question, so what? When you think about God's version of follow the leader, how are you doing? And you may be following dutifully, but I want to urge you to kind of get down to the heart of things. Um, I mentioned joy earlier. Kevin mentioned joy this morning, and I thought, what, what better, what better uh, impact could we have on our world than to demonstrate joy in the midst of relationships that causes great animosity in the world? But in here, we love each other. We lead, we follow, we accomplish the mission together. So just ask the Lord, what what would he want you to take away from this passage as it relates to leading and following? I'll pray for us. And then uh, elders who are here and uh, folks that are going to be praying, if you can make your way to the stage. Thanks. Mm -hmm.